grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. In Jesus' name, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, dear fellow redeemed. King Solomon took the throne when he was just a child. He said to the Lord, I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. I don't know what I'm doing. King Solomon was the son of King David, who was famous for his psalms, his poetry, his knowledge, and his efforts in battle. Who could fill those shoes? And so his son comes along and, as just a child, having lost his father, is now asked to take over this great kingdom. And he says, I don't know how I can do it. So the Lord gives him an unprecedented offer. He says to him, go ahead then and ask me, and I will give you what you want. Ask me anything, and I'll provide it. Solomon responds by asking the Lord for wisdom. Well, more properly, he asks for something even greater than wisdom. And even though we might have learned our Sunday school lessons about King Solomon and the story of how he asked for wisdom, we might have missed the point where what he actually asked the Lord for is a hearing heart. Give me an understanding, hearing, listening heart. Solomon would find himself in some situations where it seemed there was no answer. There was no way out. And one of the first controversies he deals with are two women. These two women are both prostitutes who have been living in a house together. They both had children. And they lived together in the house with their newborn babies. And they sleep together in the same bed. And it so happened that one night, one of the women rolled over on her baby, and the baby died. Then during the night, she switched out the babies so that the mother whose baby survived woke up with with a dead baby next to her. And the other one said that her baby lived. Now, a mother knows her child. So they brought this to the king. It it had been escalated up to the highest court, the king himself, in this dispute, where the one woman said, this isn't my baby that died. She's stolen my baby and claimed it's hers. How would you handle this situation? How could you possibly handle this situation in a way that would actually get to the truth of what happened because all you're dealing with is he said, she said, or in this case, she said, she said. It's one person's word against the other. How could you possibly get out of this situation without just doing more damage? There's a story in the Star Trek series about these situations. And if any of you are Trekkie fans, You go back to the very beginning, and you have this issue with Captain Kirk. 
They call it the Kobayashi Maru. It's a scenario that they test their cadets in to see their leadership skills. And the Kobayashi Maru is where the captain is put in a situation, a scenario where you can't win. No matter whether you try to defeat the enemy, you lose all your men. And if you try to save your men, you lose your ship. So it's this lose-lose situation. No matter what you do, you're going to lose. Remember again what Solomon asked the Lord for. He asked the Lord for a hearing heart. So as we look at Genesis chapter 3 today, and we see Eve caught in this trap where it seems a lose-lose situation where the devil has her, remember what it's teaching us about wisdom. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. When you enter into the Garden of Eden story, you have to remember a couple things. First of all, we're not dealing with fairy tales, but we're also not dealing with modern American storytelling. We're dealing with neither of those two things. And as Moses is writing this, remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to a congregation of Israelites who have grown up in Egyptian culture, who are looking at the religions of this world and trying to sort out who God is. Moses begins narrating the story to them, and he's not interested in the scientific reasoning about how a snake could talk. We look at this as modern Americans and think, well, how could snakes talk? And then we try to figure out what this must have meant for life in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. And that's an interesting conversation, but you notice in the story, Eve is not surprised about a talking serpent. And she's not surprised because Moses is not surprised. And Moses is not surprised because the Israelites are not surprised to hear this story. There's nothing out of place for them Maybe it is a bit eye-opening. But they know what the significance is for God to talk about the interaction of the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, which is what Moses is getting after. He's getting after a crossing over between a heavenly being and an earthly human. They are not concerned with how a serpent can talk, but they are concerned with how the serpent talks. Serpents appear in most every ancient religion, from the Chinese religion with its flying dragons, to the Greek Ophis, a winged serpent, to the Egyptians with a sacred deity of the serpent that they worshipped. In the Egyptian religion, you can see it in some of their artifacts where the crown will have a serpent's head on it, signifying that the wisdom and knowledge of the king comes from the power of this heavenly being depicted by a serpent. 
In fact, you find it in every pagan religion in some form. Every pagan religion that deviates from the truth of the Lord springs up some form of worship, honor, of honor or worship toward the serpent. The events of Eden then portray this interaction between a heavenly being and an earthly human. And yet, take the serpent figure and put him in the dust at the end of it. To be trampled underfoot by the seed of the woman. We'll get to that next week. But what this is, is a cunning, crafty, heavenly being who was once the highest of God's holy angels, once had command over its own legions of God's heavenly armies, beautiful in glory, is the way that Isaiah describes Lucifer before he fell. He was winged like the cherubim. He was seated in honor and authority. But for Satan, it was never enough. In fact, the whole story of the garden is about not enough. That it's just not enough for Satan, for Eve, for any one of us. When are we ever going to be satisfied? When is enough ever going to be enough to keep us happy? So... In order to get more, he decided to try to overthrow the Most High God. And his way to do this was not by confronting the Most High God face to face, where he would have been utterly destroyed, but was to try to outwit the Most High God. To try to overthrow his plans for humankind. To take his own place here on earth and turn humans against God. And he did this for many through idolatry, through the temptation of the heart, of the mind, and outwardly the twisting of truth and religion. He begins by quoting God's word. Did God really say... Notice he throws in that emphasis, the word actually, indeed, really. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is the way that the serpent works. He starts with a broad premise, something that can be easily refuted and yet opens the door for conversation. Did God really say He starts very broad, but he's aiming at something very narrow. He's got his intentions. He knows where it's headed. It is headed toward this question that God is just not enough. In the book of Proverbs, you find this depiction of good and evil and wisdom in terms of three characters. So the book of Proverbs lays out these three characters, three types of people. One is the wise, a person who is mature, understanding, who makes good decisions. On the other hand, you have the opposite, the fool, 
who is making foolish decisions, destructive choices, and is only doing harm to himself and others. And while you recognize the wise and the fool, you shouldn't miss out on the third category in the middle, which is what Proverbs calls the simple. Now, the simple are those in the middle, those who have not yet made a choice toward foolishness, and they have not yet made a choice toward wisdom. They're still naive. The simple are those who are immature, inexperienced, innocent, in a sense. The simple are the children. The children before they've faced the world. The children when they're still under their parents' care. The children before they've had to face the choice, the true test that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil presents. In the garden, Eve is the simple. And you see how she looks at the question through the eyes of a child. There's several places in her response which are not consistent with what God actually says. If the question is, what did God really say? Her answer is not true. It's not what God really said. I'm going to show you the contrast between what the woman said and what God said in each point of her answer. So first she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. If you back up to the actual command in chapter 2, verse 7, 16 and 17, she says, we may eat, but God says, you may freely eat. So she trimmed it down. God said, he, he doubled up his wording here in Hebrew and said, you, as you eat freely of every tree, you may eat as much as you want, as freely as you want. God in Hebrew emphasizes the freedom first to freely eat of the trees of the garden. She trims it down to, you may eat. She says, you may eat of the fruit of the trees. But God said, you may eat of every tree. So again, she's trimming it down. You may eat of the fruit of some of the trees. Yes, yes, yes. But God said, no, you may freely eat of all these trees in the garden. Every one of them, I open them up to you for everything you need. And you see God is just being abundant in his goodness. Then she goes on to what God said. Verse 3, but God said... If you back up to chapter 2, verse 17, it, it doesn't say God said. It says the Lord God commanded. Is there a difference between saying God said and the Lord God commanded? Well, for one thing, she doesn't use the name of the one true God. She doesn't use the sacred Hebrew name, Yehovah in Hebrew, she doesn't use the personal name. It, it would be like us talking about any old God without using the name Jesus. And she says that God said this, but he, she doesn't say that he commanded it. The command is even more forceful. So she's watering it down a little. And then she says, God said, you may eat... Uh, 
God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's not what God said. God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's something missing here that we're going to get to later on, which is to say, this is not the only tree in the middle of the garden. There's, in fact, two trees. But Eve simply says, you may not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. Well, which tree is it? Because there's two trees. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there's the tree of life. She boils it down then just to this one tree, and you can't eat from it. Then she says, you shall not touch it. God never said that. He never said anything about not touching it. He said, don't eat it. Why would anyone add the word touch to God's command? Well, maybe I'm going on a limb, but I tend to think of it as the way that children look at rules. When you're dealing with your kids and trying to get them to stop doing what they're doing, Maybe your son has his feet up on the table, and you say, don't put your feet on the table, and so then he puts his hands on the table. Or you say, don't uh, take any more, or don't take a cookie, and so he takes two cookies. Well, you said not take a cookie. I took two. And so finally the parent gets so fed up that he says, all right, all right. I don't even want you to touch that table. I don't even want you to look at that table. I don't even want you to go in the kitchen, even near those cookies. You're not allowed in the kitchen for the rest of the day. So we try to keep refining the commands tighter and tighter so we can make sure our kids just stop doing what they're doing instead of understanding why the command was given. You shall not touch it. Don't even go near it. And then finally she says, lest you die. When God gave the command, he again doubled up the emphasis of the death that was coming. He said, dying you will die. In other words, in Hebrew, it's, it's, a, it's a serious emphasis, which means you are going to begin to die and you are doomed to die if you don't follow this command. But Eve simply says, you might die. At this point, the serpent knows he's got her. At this point, the serpent knows he's got all of us. Because if we approach church in this way, we're bound to lose no matter which way we go. And I think there is a picture here of two different ways of reading the scriptures. In fact, three different ways. Let me go through this and show you with the current controversy two different ways that the church can wrongly read the scriptures. One is the legalistic church. The other is the liberalistic church. The legalistic church says, don't touch. In other words, all the rules, all the laws of scripture are black and white, and we don't even want you to go near anything that might be construed as touching or tempting you into sin. So we might rule out all use of alcohol. Don't even touch it. 
There's no why, there's only what. And in many ways, it leads to rules without relationship. You've got all the rules, you need to follow them, but there's no relationship. There's no love. That's the legalistic church. On the other hand, you have the liberalistic church. That'd be the other end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum would say, just go ahead and touch it. What's the harm? God didn't say it was wrong to touch it. Go ahead and touch it. He does say don't eat it, but if you want to touch it, if you want to take a closer look, as long as you don't eat it. And suddenly everything becomes great. Everything becomes more about you deciding, you making the choice, you doing what feels right. And you start reasoning with the serpent. You start working with the serpent to kind of find wiggle room in some of the things that God has said. Instead of, you will surely die, well, you might die. There's a current controversy going on in evangelical churches, and I'm going to venture off into this. Although I'm already 20 minutes into my sermon, I didn't realize how this text was going to get away. Some of you might have heard about Andy Stanley. Anybody heard of Andy Stanley in the news lately? Well, he's one of the pastors of one of the largest churches in America. And he recently led a conference for parents called Unconditional. The purpose of the conference was to deal with same-sex relationships and transgenderism in the church. In his lineup of speakers, he included two married men who spoke on the topic. And he said, no one should have to choose between faith and sexual orientation. In his sermon that followed up, he outlined what he called the quieter middle space, which this middle space would be for people who are dealing with same-sex attraction, and what is that middle place like for them in the church? In a lot of ways, I can hear the reasoning behind that. I can hear a need for that conversation. He was trying to argue that others who are too conservative were drawing divisive lines. He said that Jesus didn't draw lines, he drew circles. He said God asked them to change, but God did not answer their prayer. So the church should be making a space for them. He gave many emotional testimonies about relationships restored and saving lives. Now, did God really say And what did God really say? On the one hand, you could be a legalistic church. One which is only concerned with rules but not relationships. A church which simply says, if you have any same-sex attractions, you're a sinner and you're not welcome here. That you need to put an end to all of those inclinations and... You need to become heterosexual, straight. It's black and white. And not only that, but preach that message so often in the church that you're ignoring the rest of the sins in the passage, like greed, pride, 
hatred, and you just push those to the side in favor of hammering down these certain Bible passages. Because homosexuality, transgenderism is a hot topic, and it's one that needs to be addressed, which is why I'm taking this time to address it. The other side of that is the liberalistic approach, which simply says we're only concerned with relationships, but we're not concerned with righteousness. It's all gray, and so it can be all gay. These are churches that will put up rainbow pride flags and say that it's done out of love, but they won't talk about lust. The temptation of Genesis chapter 3, I believe, is trying, is about gaining knowledge instead of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil had a purpose. God had given Adam and Eve knowledge, but the knowledge they had, they supposed, was not enough. They wanted more knowledge. And the path to more and more knowledge of good and evil the path toward who's right and who's wrong and I know better is always the path to death. Eve becomes confused and misled because she misses out on the most important piece of the story that she never mentions, the tree of life. There is not just one tree in the midst of the garden. She calls it out that God says you can't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, but she ignores the fact that, no, God said you could eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden because he gave the tree of life for that very purpose. There's two trees. But she chooses knowledge, the tree of knowledge, instead of the tree of life. And I think that's an important contrast because knowledge without God makes us the gods. It makes us like the angels, like the devil himself, like one of them, now presuming in God's eyes to define what good and evil is. Whether we define it by too rigidly restricting what God said, we shall not touch it, or by too loosely speaking what God said, it doesn't matter, you might die, you might not. Every person has to face this challenge, and I believe it's the path that Proverbs is saying that leads from simplicity in the middle to either a fool or the wise, depending on how you approach these questions. It's why when we're dealing with our catechism students in 6th through 8th grade, we have to help them think through these different issues to realize that it's not a simple answer even though the Bible is clear. Satan wants to narrow the discussion to knowledge. What is God really saying? And when we narrow it down just to knowledge, left to ourselves, we can make the Bible say whatever we want. I can quote a passage, you can quote a passage, Andy Stanley can quote a passage, Albert Moeller can quote a passage, and we can all make it say, what we want it to say. Trust me, I've, I've seen this, I've lived through it, and you guys probably have too. He wants to narrow it down to knowledge but ignore the issue of life and death. 
God wants us to think about life and death. Where did death come from? What is death? He says when you eat of the tree of knowledge, you will not just die, but you will surely die. In other words, there's an unraveling of life. There's a twisting, a corrupting, a sickness that will invade our world if we choose the tree of knowledge against God's word. To choose, on the other hand, the tree of life is to trust God, is to find the true wisdom that's not in the story for Eve or Adam or the serpent, because the path of wisdom, Proverbs 3 says, is a tree of life. Proverbs 3, the way of wisdom is a tree of life. If we can start seeing that the lives of these individual people, people who struggle with same-sex attraction, people confused about their gender, people questioning whether the church is doing the right thing on these issues, if we can approach the question not from the knowledge of good and evil, but from the knowledge of life, we might look at it a totally different way. In other words, that one person sitting in the pew in Anne Stanley's conference has their own story, their own story of life, their own story of death, their own story of sin. And it's going to be individualized to every one of those single people, depending on where they're at. And it's our job as a church to direct them back to the tree of life, which is ultimately the cross. Because the cross is the tree both of the knowledge of good and evil where Jesus is crucified for the knowledge that the world thought it had about him, they put him to death, but it's also the tree of life because through his death, he dealt with all death, with all sin, with all corruption, with all wrongdoing. And in his resurrection, he's giving us the fruit to eat of it. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, because without me, we can't answer questions that Andy Stanley is raising. We cannot answer them without Jesus. And the only way to get to Jesus' answer is going to be through the path of life. I will agree that there should be space in the middle. Space for homosexuals, Space for heterosexuals. Space for sinners. Sinners, whether they're homosexual or heterosexual, who have all sinned against lust. Paul says they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But along with the list, he also includes greed and idolatry. And he goes on to say, such were some of you. But you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. Jesus is a tree of life for us to go away from the path of destruction, to live the path of life. And to know God is to hate evil. To love God is to hate what the devil is doing. Any deviation from the life that's in Jesus, any sin of sexual nature or otherwise, from pornography to adultery to same-sex marriages, 
all need Jesus. And like Eve, every one of us have to face this test, and I'm encouraging you not to fall into the trap that the devil is setting. Wisdom, then, is discerning the difference between death, which is from the tempter, and life, which is from our loving Lord and Savior. In the story of Solomon, he finds himself confronted with a no-win scenario, the Kobayashi Maru. And what he does then is he tells both mothers that he's going to kill the baby. He says to them, this is what we'll do. We'll cut the baby in half. That way, both of you can have half the baby. When he does this, it actually reveals the truth. Because the one mother says, fine, do it. And the other mother says, no. Says, just give the child to her. Because in her heart as a mother, she knows she'd rather have that child live than be right. So this is about the wisdom of the cross, the wisdom of Jesus, and the way of life. Amen.